What I'm going to share with you this morning as we continue to talk about worldview is it's going to be some things that you're going to go, well, yeah, 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 I get that. My hope is, is that for everyone here that's a follower of Christ, that what I share with you this morning is going to be of great encouragement to you. I mean, I, just the reality that because Jesus Christ died for me, my sins are forgiven. You know, I don't, I don't worry today about what's going to happen tomorrow. Certainly all of the failure behind me has been taken care of, but I don't worry today about the failure that's going to happen tomorrow because my sin has been forgiven. I have confidence in Jesus Christ. I hope you have that confidence today. I hope you listen clearly, and I hope you're encouraged by what I share with you today. Before we read the scripture, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but before I read and share that scripture with you this morning, you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we, uh, once again, we, we stand in awe of you, the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. That, that's, that's who you are, that's who scripture says that you are. And as followers of Jesus Christ, that's who we confess that you are. God, as, as we look at, at Scripture today, your word, give us eyes with which to see. Give us hearts with which to, to grasp, and sense deeply, minds to understand. And God, the fullness of your own spirit to embrace fully what it is that you've revealed to us. God, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we might be the body of Christ in the world today, that, that the world would see a view on our part that's different from theirs, God, that they would recognize. We don't see things as they see things. And Father, that they would be compelled by the power of your spirit, God, that they would be compelled to change their view, to see things in a more accurate way, to see things through Jesus. And we pray it in his name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in, in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians at Corinth. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So whether then it is I or they, the other apostles, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. How does our 
biblical Christian worldview direct and form our understanding of Jesus? How, we, how do we view Jesus as compared to those living a non-Christian life with a non-Christian worldview? What are the differences? Well, first, Paul preached that Jesus lived and that Jesus died, that Jesus was a, a real person. If you go back and look in Acts chapter 7 that we studied through last year, young Saul of Tarsus, the, the Pharisee who would eventually become known as the Apostle Paul, listened. He was there. He was present as Stephen proclaimed Jesus the Messiah. He stood watch as others stoned Stephen to death. He heard the message of Jesus. In Acts chapter 9 verses 27 through 28, Luke tells us that shortly after Paul chose to follow Jesus, he went to Jerusalem and he spent time with the apostles there. He heard their stories of the years that they spent traveling with Jesus. Paul was certain about Jesus. In fact, Paul may well have seen or heard Jesus in Jerusalem at some point during Jesus's earthly life. We can't say that for sure from Scripture, but what we, what we can say is that there is absolutely no denying that Jesus is a historical figure. Two weeks ago, we watched a video in which Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health for the United States, said that as a young doctor, as a young scientist, he had always considered Christ as much myth as history. Many who have not looked at the historical record believe the same thing that Collins believed. Collins said, though, when he began to study, he realized that there was overwhelming evidence for Jesus as a historical figure. There are still a few today that will make this argument that Jesus actually never really existed. He's a mythological figure. But among scholars... It is a minority view. Jesus is a historical figure recorded in the biblical record, recorded in ancient histories as well. Indeed, there is greater evidence for the existence of Jesus than there is for Alexander the Great. If you believe one, you must believe the other as a historical figure. Jesus' existence is a settled matter. Jesus is often referred to in Scripture as Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah. Here, Paul refers to Jesus as Messiah. He uses Christ, the title. Paul was a Jew, and he writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus, the Messiah, died and arose according to Scripture. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah, a Savior, one that would rescue them from those that oppressed them, just as God had sent Moses to rescue them from the oppression of their Egyptian bondage. The Jews of the first century were waiting for God to send someone to rescue them from Rome. Paul was convinced that Jesus was and is the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it's a, it's a prophetic word from Isaiah 700 years before Jesus even arrives on the scene. In Isaiah 9, 6, 
Isaiah wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The kingdom will go on forever. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. These are the the kinds of thoughts that the Jews had, that there was a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior, a coming king that was going to rule and reestablish the nation of Israel. Paul and the other apostles and all of the first century Jews who decided to follow Jesus understood clearly that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. He was and he is. But Paul and the other first century Jews who accepted Jesus as God's Messiah were in the minority. And everywhere they went proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, they they met resistance as they shared their message. We saw that throughout the book of Acts. Every time Paul went to a new community, he went into the synagogue. He stayed there a few days. He stayed there a few weeks sometimes. But eventually he was rejected and he would go out into the community and reach out to those other than the Jews. The majority of Jews throughout history have disagreed with Paul. The majority of the Jews do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah would never die on a cross. Jesus could not possibly fulfill the role, meet the requirements of Messiah, but that's because they failed to understand the mission of the Messiah. See, Paul understood that Jesus came to save, but not from Roman oppression. Paul said Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to Scripture. Paul understood the words of Isaiah 53, 5, where Isaiah wrote, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's laid on Christ our sin. Paul understood that the greatest problem of the Jews was not the political oppression that they endured. It was not their lack of national autonomy or identity. It was their separation from God. They'd gone astray. They had turned to their own way. They had ceased to follow or to seek after God. In Romans 8, 7, Paul said, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Paul recognized that his people, the Jewish people, needed reconciliation to God. The Jewish religious leaders who so opposed Jesus were hostile to God's revelation of himself through Jesus. This is about as hostile as a person can be towards God. They refused to accept his son Jesus. They had other ideas about how 
God should work. They had a different idea about the Messiah, about how he should act, how he should speak, what he should do. The religious leaders needed salvation from their deluded, their misinformed, their misperceived ideas and thoughts regarding the Messiah. Isaiah said in in chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. This describes the Jewish religious leaders well. They were wise in their own eyes, calling good evil and calling light darkness. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, it says this, a demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus, and he was blind, and he couldn't speak. And Jesus healed the man so that he could both speak and see. And the crowd was amazed when he did this. And they said, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, is the Messiah? They were questioning, they, they saw the marks of the Messiah on Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, well, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. You see, the religious leaders rejected Jesus. They called good evil. They called light darkness. And in rejecting Jesus, they separated themselves from God. They would not have acknowledged this. They would have denied this. They would have said, we are sons of Abraham. But in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, they were acting with hostility toward God. I want you to think about this for a moment. Virtually everyone is familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whosoever, whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But few are familiar with the verses that follow, verses 17 and 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. His one and only Son. There there are no other. There's no other Son. There's no other Messiah. There's no other anointed of God that's coming. The one and only has come. The Jewish people needed deliverance from their their arrogant attitude that they knew better than God. And, And this was the history of the nation from the time of their deliverance from Egypt until the arrival of Jesus. Last week we looked at Joshua 23, 6, where Joshua told the Israelites who'd conquered the promised land, be strong, be careful to obey all that's written in the law of Moses without turning to the right or to the left. Don't associate with the nations that remain among you. Don't invoke the name of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you're to hold fast to the Lord your God. The Israelites were unable to do this. They found embrace of the Canaanite deities attractive. 
at times, from the time of the judges through the kings during the exile and upon their return to Jerusalem. They struggled to give God preeminence. Solomon was one of the greatest kings of Israel. The kingdom under his rule was at its most expansive, its most powerful stage as a nation. And he was considered one of the wisest men of his time. People from all over the world traveled to, to speak with Solomon and to, to hear his wisdom. His wisdom is recorded in the Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes and in, in the Song of Songs. Listen to what the writer of 1 Kings said of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. You see, the the intermarriage was not the the chief issue. The concern was that if you intermarried with them, that they would turn your heart towards their God. You wouldn't turn their heart towards your God. We, we have examples in the lineage of Jesus, of women that were not Israelites. We have Rahab, we have Ruth, we have women in that lineage that it, it, it wasn't wrong to intermarry, it was wrong to intermarry and then have, have your heart turned to, to begin to worship the gods of those with whom you, you intermarried. God knew this. You must not intermarry because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Verse 10, although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you. I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. There are consequences. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. He didn't abandon the people completely, but there were consequences. The Jewish people suffered exile as a consequence of their rejection of God. They lost their land. God removed them. He took them out of their land. He eventually allowed their return, but under the rule of 
foreign empires, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, they were never fully independent again. And that, that independence, a return to the glory days of Solomon was what they awaited. That was the point and the purpose of the Messiah, the Savior, in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, and nothing short of that would do. They wanted what they wanted, and they rejected what God sent. What God sent was a Savior from sin. Just as Isaiah told the Jewish people, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And Paul said, there's, there's, there's no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of God. This, this inclination to desire what we want above our desire for God's will is, is what separates all of us from God, ultimately. We are all sinners. We all act with hostility towards God. When our desires do not align with God's will and we prioritize those desires above God's will, we become God's enemies, loving ourselves and the world more than we love God. It's the very nature of sin. This is a description of sin. We know God's will, but we choose to disobey. After Joshua told the Israelites, obey God's law, don't deviate from it, don't intermarry with the Canaanites, don't worship their gods, this is precisely what Solomon did. As a king, he set the standard for all of his people. Obedience to God was not that critical. If marrying foreign women and worshiping their gods seemed advantageous, expeditious, attractive, if there were good reasons, then it was okay. But it's not okay. To ignore God is sin. To disobey God is sin. And again, it is from this, our sinful condition, our sinful inclinations, that Jesus came to save. Isaiah called the people to return to God and told them if they would, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Paul said in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, where we started, Paul said, Christ died for our sins. That's why he died, was for our sins, according to Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, to five hundred, to James, the apostles, and then to me on the road to Damascus. The secular world strives at moments to be kind to Jesus. Some say he was a good and noble man, a, a brilliant rabbi, a great teacher, a philosopher of great wisdom, did his call to love each other that he extended, and the gospel of John is, is the key to peace on earth that so many desperately want, but they reject Jesus as the Messiah, as a Savior sent from God as a sacrifice that frees from sin, as a resurrected Lord. They don't want to insult Jesus, but they refuse to accept Jesus as Lord. Again, from last week, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. The idea that you can seek God or find God or love God while rejecting Jesus is ludicrous. If Jesus is who he says he is, then to reject this one whom God sent to save us from our hopeless separation from him is to reject his sacrifice for our sin, his atoning death on the cross. It is to simply increase the level of hostility that is expressed towards God. How would you respond? How would you respond if you sent your child to rescue others and those to whom you sent your child refused that one, rejected, ridiculed, sought to kill the one that you sent, how would you respond? To reject Jesus as Lord and Savior is a rejection of God himself, an elevation of your own ideas, your own thoughts and desires, your own idea of what's right above God's. I had a friend share with me that they were speaking to someone not too long ago that, that told them, Jesus is my hero. I said, well, that's, that's a pleasant thought. I mean, you, you look up the definition of the word hero. It's someone with great courage, outstanding achievements, noble qualities, an individual that, that you would aspire to be like, a, a, a hero. And the person that said this was trying to be complimentary, but, but know this. Jesus didn't come to be your hero. He didn't come to be somebody that you would admire or idolize. He came to be your Savior and to be your Lord. This is the biblical Christian worldview of Jesus, an, an undisputed person of history who was sent to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of a coming Messiah and fulfilled those prophecies to a T, a Savior who lived and died as a sacrifice for sin, who arose from the grave demonstrating the full divinity of God, the creator and the giver of life, a risen Lord and Savior who makes reconciliation with God possible if we choose to trust and obey and follow him. To remove any of these elements from an understanding of Jesus is to diminish Jesus and to reject the provision of God. And as much as some would like to say, all paths lead to heaven, they don't. All paths don't lead to heaven. And good people don't automatically go to heaven. The Bible makes clear all are sinners, none are righteous, there are no good. Jesus himself, when one called him good, said, said why do you call me good? God alone is good. There are no good. We need Jesus. He is not one of many prophets. He is the Son of God, one with God, who makes your redemption possible. The Christian worldview believes in Jesus alone 
for salvation. But, but understand this. In Jesus, in Jesus Christ, and in salvation through Jesus Christ, when you understand these things, when you accept these things, when you live in the midst of these things, the confidence with which you can live, this is not a burdensome call. This is not one that you, you live every day with, oh my gosh, I've got to be obedient today. I know I'm going to fail. I, it's, man, your sins are forgiven. If you put your faith and trust in God, your sins are forgiven from first to last. You're a child of the king. God looks at you and he sees Jesus. He approves of you as he approves of Jesus because you are covered and your sins are covered with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You don't live in fear of tomorrow. For the sake of Jesus Christ and because of what God has done in your spirit, you live to honor Christ. You live to exalt the Lord. You live to lift up his name. I mean, you, you want to do these things because the Spirit of God compels you to do these things. You live with confidence. You live with confidence. Not fearful of the sin you may commit tomorrow. Unless... You're just living in adject disobedience. I mean, you, you, you know what it is that God's calling you to, and, and you're just living in disobedience. If that's the case, then my guess is you, you're probably living with some sense of dread, and, and rightfully so. Either because you do not know Jesus is Lord. You've never fully accepted him for who he is. Or maybe you did at one point, and now... You're just living the life of the rebellious child. Either way, it's time to come back to this place of acknowledging Jesus as Lord. You stand. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord, your Savior from sin, and the Lord of your life, that directs your life at every point. He gives point and purpose to everything that you do. It's the owner of all that you are and all that you own. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and chosen to follow him that way, and you can do that. It, it, it starts at a point. Once again, I've said this many times. There's nothing magic about coming down and praying with me. Probably somebody standing close by it. Pray with you that God will hear just as clearly as he hears any prayer of mine. But, but my call to you this morning, we want to give you opportunity. We want to give you opportunity to say, I will begin to follow Jesus. This is a first step that happens. And I believe taking that first step publicly and proclaiming it publicly. I believe baptism is important. I believe public proclamation, aligning yourself with Jesus and saying, I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. I believe taking that stand and aligning yourself with Jesus in a very public way is important. I, I hear people on programs interviewed and, you know, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What, what kind of religion do you practice? Well, those are private things. I don't speak about those things. And that's, that's, just, that's a private matter. I just want to scream, no, no, that's a, that's a public matter. 
That's we've been called as followers of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not, then keep it private by all means. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, buddy, that's a public matter. That's one we wear on our sleeves, we wear in our hearts, we wear in our words and actions at every point. And so I believe making a profession by coming down and praying with me and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I think that's fantastic. Following that up with baptism, or if you've never been baptized, but you claim to be a follower of Christ, this is important. It's public proclamation. We can make those things happen for you. We invite you to do that this morning. The rest of you. I mean, David walked in darkness for close to a year in the midst of his his adultery with, with Bathsheba, the killing of his, his friend Uriah. I mean, it's possible for the closest to God to wander away and deluded thinking for Satan to have victory in their life momentarily. But David came back to God. He confessed his sin. He came back to God. We have Psalm 51 to prove the, the repentance of his heart and the forgiveness that's available. So, Christian, if, you, if you've been walking in disobedience. This, this is the moment. God's here and He's tugging at your heart right now. This is the moment to respond to Him and say, I will walk in obedience. From this point forward, I will not demonstrate hostility towards the God who's provided for me everything, everything for life and godliness. God's here this morning. You respond to Him.